I'm Emily Kate, and this is We the Voters. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the We the Voters podcast. It's a podcast where I take hot topics in U.S. culture and break them down from opposite opinions. I'm your host, Emily Kate Topchesky. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief at We the Voters, which is basically a fancy way of saying that this project is just me, so I wear a lot of hats. I'm a podcaster, editor, producer, writer, filmmaker, photographer, web designer, travel coordinator, social media manager, and the list goes on. We the Voters began in 2019 when I set off on the road to understand the ways U.S. citizens are more alike than different. This podcast is my next step in bridging the ways we listen and talk about the other side, no matter what side you're on. So, if you're a new listener, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Today's episode covers a subject I feel particularly passionate about, the media. Namely, what it is, how it works, and where it should go from here. If you've met me, listened to the podcast, or read the blog, you probably know a little bit about my history with journalism. I've wanted to be a journalist since I was seven. I worked in broadcast news during and just out of college. I founded We the Voters because I was dissatisfied with how stories were being told. I'm a journalist because I believe that at its best, journalism plays an incredible role in our society. I'm a journalist because I believe fair, honest reporting can shape the way we think and interact. I am a journalist simply because I can't imagine doing anything else. So you may be thinking, turn this off now. She's part of the media herself, and there's no way this show could be fair and non-biased. Let me assure you, I may love the concept of the media, but I do not have rose-colored glasses about the media ecosystem today. And in many ways, I may be just as frustrated as you are. But like the episodes before this one, and the episodes after, this is not about me. What we're here to talk about does not reflect my personal feelings because I believe feelings do not have a place in journalism. So now that we have that covered, let's get to it. So what is the media? The media, the press, journalists, whatever you call the news ecosystem, it's undeniable that it has a large role in our culture. And these days, that role may seem more controversial than ever. The media is largely protected under the First Amendment, which we talked about to a certain extent last week. The Founding Fathers recognized the role journalism plays in maintaining an informed society and a functioning democracy. But the media looks undeniably different now than it did in 1789, when freedom of the press was first protected in the Bill of Rights. For the sake of clarity, let's define the media for this episode. The media refers to all the ways journalists disseminate news and information to the public. This includes TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, and websites. And nowadays, it's also expanded to include podcasts, YouTube channels, and social media accounts. Traditionally, there is an expectation that the media covers current events and relays information without bias. It is expected that journalists relay the news quickly, accurately, and fully. Meeting these expectations are essential to maintaining trust with the public and sustaining an informed society. Today, many feel that that trust has been broken. It's been broken by a growing number of biased news sources who either share analysis on the news or spread disinformation. It's been broken by the focus on profit over product in growing revenue margins rather than informing the public. It's been broken by the intermingling of organic and sponsored stories, which confuses journalism with PR. And yes, it's been broken by feelings, by the focus on infotainment, news personalities, commentators, and fast soundbites rather than investigating the news. So the question is, where can the media go from here? What will it take to rebuild the public's trust in the media? 
First, let's go back and see where the media came from. It's time to talk about the history of journalism in the U.S. Just like when we talked about free speech last week, journalism and the media have had a large role throughout all of human history. Storytelling passed down history and news long before the written word. But for brevity's sake, we're going to stick to the U.S. And we're going to walk through some key moments that formed the media that we know today. The roots of journalism in the U.S. go back to 1690, before this country was even this country. In 1690, the first newspaper was published in the United States. This inaugural issue said that it would be published once a month, or whenever the news happened. But that first issue happened to be its only issue. Since it was published without permission from the government, it was immediately shut down. The publisher was arrested and nearly all copies were destroyed. Now, 15 years later, the first continually published newspaper was established. It was largely subsidized by the government, and because of its limited circulation, it was largely considered a failure. In 1735, we see a court case that begins to define the media in America. A publisher was put on trial for libel. He was accused of publishing articles that used sarcasm and innuendo to ridicule the New York governor. The publisher's lawyer argued that newspapers should be free to criticize the government, as long as what they published was true. Ultimately, the publisher was found not guilty, and this case shaped the political culture that led to freedom of the press. In the colonial era, newspapers were four pages long and distributed weekly. They were made up of ads, gossip, and European news from the London press. Local news from the colonies didn't often make the cut until the 1760s. And that's when the media took on a new role. At the start of the revolution, the media became experts in propaganda. Colonial papers influenced public opinion in the U.S., choosing sides in the conflict. Some papers supported reconciliation with England. Others chose political independence. After the war, press freedom was guaranteed in the First Amendment. Left broad, this means that the media has the right to report the news and circulate opinions without government censorship. The specifics of press freedom would be regularly debated over the coming centuries, and even today. But this scope of press freedom was immediately challenged in 1798, when President John Adams introduced the Sedition Act. As you may recall from last week's episode, this act was largely considered a major infringement on the First Amendment. Designed as a way to punish critics, the Sedition Act made it illegal to criticize the government, and it was widely enforced. Both journalists and ordinary citizens were prosecuted, fined $2,000, and spent two years in jail. Three years later, Congress let the act expire, and the new president, Thomas Jefferson, pardoned all who were convicted under the Sedition Act. The 1830s brought about another shift in journalism. Publishers saw the potential for both commercial success and more readers, so many papers turned away from opinions towards non-biased reporting. Advances in printing led to unprecedented newspaper growth and a new penny press. This new form of newspapers cost a penny an issue, rather than the normal six cents. These penny papers fundamentally changed the way readers consumed news, focusing more on local news, the courts, and society. But not all papers adopted this shift to non-biased news. In 1841, a publisher founded the New York Tribune. This fast-growing paper was anti-slavery, pro-women's rights, and supportive of socialist ideals. It quickly became widely influential through both the North and the West, and was an open critic of slavery laws in the lead-up to the Civil War. Through much of the 19th century, there has been a dynamic relationship between the press and politics. Many reporters wrote for multiple papers, 
while also working for politicians or congressional committees. Much of the news was focused locally rather than on national politics. After the Civil War, the media began grappling with its role in society. The connection between the media and politics weakened as liberal reformers questioned party loyalty. So this led to a big question. Was journalism's role to be independent for politics a watchdog of the government? Or was it to press a political or moral agenda? These questions would influence the remainder of the century, and they're still being grappled with today. But let's get to that in a bit. In the 1880s, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst were two titans in the media business. Both leaders were competing for mass circulation by constant one-upmanship, which led to a trend now called yellow journalism. Yellow journalism favored sensationalism over facts. It was, essentially, the disinformation of that century, where lies were currency for both political gain and financial profit. But by 1890, a quarter of daily northern newspapers claimed non-bias. They were highly popular and profitable, seeing both increased circulation and advertising revenue. Six years later, a new owner bought the New York Times, and he declared a new mission. He strove to, quote, give the news impartially without fear or favor, unquote. This move set the Times apart from the yellow journals and set a new standard for journalistic integrity. But the battle over the media's role continued into the 20th century. The progressive era was largely marked by muckraking. Muckraking was a style of journalism that exposed corruption at many levels, which unsurprisingly meant that journalists came under fire by those in power. Muckraking also practiced sensational news, but it fell out of style around 1912 when the public became tired of these exposés. The 1920s brought about a new technology, the radio. Later, during World War II, the media would use the airwaves to distribute breaking news. But in the 1930s, two decisions were made that established the media as we know it today. In 1931, the Supreme Court struck down a law that suppressed both malicious and scandalous publications. This decision reaffirmed press freedom, that the government was not allowed to control what the media published. And it also decided that suppression was a greater danger than the media acting irresponsibly. This decision can be linked to the trend of opinion-based news and the proliferation of disinformation that we see today. But in 1934, Congress passed the Communications Act. This act serves as the foundation for commercial television and radio in the U.S., and it establishes principles that are still in effect in 2021. First, the airwaves are public property. Second, commercial broadcasters are licensed to use the airwaves. And third, the main condition for use will be whether the broadcaster served the public interest, convenience, and necessity. This act also created the Federal Communications Committee, also known as the FCC. The FCC regulates U.S. airwaves and other communications to ensure the public interest. Twenty years later, the first national news broadcast aired on television, a move that upended how the public consumed news. By 1963, polls showed that Americans preferred TV news over newspapers. And the media transformed even more during the Vietnam War. This conflict was the first when TV news held such reach and regard among the public. Unprecedented moves to show violence overseas garnered public outrage and rapt attention. The direct reporting challenged government statements, drawing attention to a credibility gap, the half-truths and official lies about the war. But despite the growing popularity of TV news, newspapers still played an important role in investigative journalism. The 1970s brought about the release of the Pentagon Papers, which swept the country and revealed what President Johnson knew about the Vietnam War. A few years later, President Nixon resigned after a Washington Post investigation into Watergate. But the pace of news would reach a new high when CNN first broadcast in 1980. This move introduced the 24-hour news cycle and once again entirely upended the media industry. Prior to CNN, the news slept overnight. 
Reports were limited to specific hours in the evening on select channels. Broadcast news was led by trusted anchors like Edward Murrow and Walter Cronkite. These networks earned their money from entertainment programming, so they could afford to run their newsrooms at a loss. And often, they did. Cable news changed this forever. It transformed the broadcast industry into a constant stream of information. There was a question about how to fill 24 hours in a day when news had previously been framed in 30-minute programs. Cable news brought about a new era of pundits and commentators in journalism. But CNN wasn't an immediate hit. In fact, it wouldn't gain momentum until the first Gulf War. But let's get to that in one sec. First, I want to talk about the idea of balanced media. In 1987, the FCC abolished the Fairness Doctrine. This doctrine was first passed in 1949 when the government recognized the growing influence of TV and radio. Essentially, it leveled the playing field. The doctrine required that broadcast networks devote equal time to contrasting views on public issues. It ensured that non-biased news served the public interest. But during President Reagan's second term, this doctrine was rolled back until it was ultimately revoked entirely. At that time, the FCC said it had a chilling effect on the freedom of speech. The Fairness Doctrine has been revisited numerous times ever since this decision. Its effectiveness and its role in the media are big questions to the current state of news today. Now, let's get back to the first Gulf War. We'll talk more about the Fairness Doctrine when we talk about the future of journalism. In 1991, CNN was the only station to have reporters in Baghdad when the bombing began, and these crews began to broadcast live from the hotel where they were staying. This nonstop coverage captivated the public and put CNN officially on the map. But cable news expanded in the 90s to include another big name, Fox News. Launched in 1996, this station provided a conservative take on public affairs. That same year, MSNBC entered the airwaves. Much like how Fox News positioned itself on the right, MSNBC positioned itself on the left. It sold itself as a left-of-center take on the news. These three stations cemented overall trends in journalism that are still strong today. First, the unspoken idea of profit over product. Media consolidation, ratings, and revenue encouraged an atmosphere of following opinions over facts. Long gone were the days of operating news at a deficit and making up the profits with other programming. And two, the rise of infotainment. This style of reporting recalls the sensationalism of both yellow journalism and muckraking. It was largely made possible by deregulation in the 1980s, and it led to highly partisan programs on radio and cable news networks from both sides of the aisle. The end of the 20th century also brought about another part of the media ecosystem, the internet. The internet has played a growing role in the dissemination of news from the very first blogs and chat forums. Early websites democratized the news. It took reporting out of the hands of a select few, and it led to high engagement, immediate analysis, and an entirely new avenue to report on current events. Both newspapers and broadcast stations have expanded their presence online. Digital news and startups serve both niche and broad audiences. Banner ads and bonus content replaced both print subscriptions and traditional advertising models. With the advent of the internet, the news cycle has become even quicker. Take social media. Social media gained popularity in the early 21st century. It once again changed the way that people interact with and consume news. Scrolling news feeds like Facebook and Twitter have fundamentally altered the nature of the media industry. And trends on social media have taken over conversations in traditional news outlets. Think about conspiracy theories. Through the internet, they've been able to reach new heights. They're spread through a mass network of content farms and disinformation blogs, which pose as news sites. The internet as a whole is highly unregulated. It means that just about anything can find its own niche audience. 
Now, news is constantly accessible via smartphones, laptops, and tablets. It's accessible on cable news, network news, and radio broadcasts. You can read it in newspapers, magazines, and newsletters. So with all of these avenues to interact with current affairs, why does it feel that the media landscape is even more contested today than it was 200 years ago? To understand this question, I first want to talk a little bit about my experience as a member of the media. Since founding We the Voters, I have talked to hundreds of people across 26 states. I've covered protests, rallies, and events in Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., and I've faced questions about the media head-on. When I was on the road, I experimented with the ways I introduced myself. Titles like reporter and journalist caused many people I met to shut down. They were immediately not interested in talking with me, or they were skeptical about my intentions. Some said that I was going to twist their words. Others wanted to know the specifics of who paid me and why. I was asked invasive questions about both my motives and my paycheck, which I'd never faced before in any of my other jobs. So I started calling myself a writer, or a photographer, or filmmaker, or a researcher. I framed my media project to focus on the sociology role, the understanding of people in America, rather than the political or news role. I didn't change the project, and I didn't lie, but I wanted people to see me and to see the project, rather than the quote, media. When I covered protests and rallies, I was met with even more skepticism from both sides of the aisle. On the right, I witnessed protesters chanting things like, quote, Fox News sucks. Multiple people yelled, defund the media in my face, or they shook their fake news signs at me. I was met with distrust and, yes, even disgust at every turn. And on the left, I had protesters try to grab my camera. Other protesters tried to block me from photographing faces and events. I was sometimes treated like a hostile invader. People turned me down constantly for interviews, not wanting their words to be twisted by the quote media. And many protesters have yelled at me to stop taking photos or told me that I needed consent before photographing people at an event. There are a few things I want to clear up before we discuss more about this topic. For the record, first, don't touch news media equipment. Much like you wouldn't want someone to touch your belongings, you shouldn't touch someone else's. Also, let's clear up a common myth about photographing public events. The First Amendment protects you if you want to speak up or assemble at protests or rallies, but it also protects me and my colleagues as members of the press, allowing us to freely capture the event. At events that happen on public property, journalists do not need your permission to photograph you. For example, public property includes places like sidewalks and government buildings. In this case, you are operating in a public space. And the Supreme Court has ruled that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy. The media is allowed to document anything and anyone visible from a public space. On private property, the media is expected to follow by the owner's requests. But once again, this does not necessarily require consent from attendees. Consent is often considered implied when you show up to a public event. When discussing the media, it is important to define the words we're using. The two main avenues in mainstream media sources are news and opinion. The proliferation of these sources and the fast-moving media cycles often mean that they can get confused or conflated. So it may be helpful to think about it this way. An article in the metro section of your local newspaper is news, facts on what happened. On the other hand, anchors and commentators on primetime cable shows are giving opinion, ways to interpret the news. Overall, distrust in the media appears to be the rule, not the exception. And the numbers back it up. Edelman is a global communications firm. They found that 56% of Americans believe that the media misleads people by saying things that are either false or gross exaggerations. 
58% of Americans believe that the media is more concerned with supporting ideology rather than informing the public. And other polling has found numbers that further cement anecdotal evidence. In 2020, a Gallup poll found that only 1 in 10 Americans trust the media a great deal. 60% of Americans, on the other hand, trust the media either not very much or not at all. Gallup has been monitoring trust in the media since 1972. In the 1970s, about three-quarters of Americans trusted reporters in the news media. The number declined to about half of Americans by the 1990s. But since 2005, overall trust in the media has not been in the majority. In 2016, only 32% trusted the media. In 2020, that trust sat at 40%. And when broken down by political party, it appears that trust is a largely partisan issue. 73% of Democrats polled in 2020 trusted the media a great deal or a fair amount while only 10% of Republicans agreed to that same statement. As for independents, about one-third appear to trust the media. Now, the news does not appear to be going anywhere. Despite a great distrust in the media, more than 80% of Americans say that the news is either critical or very important to democracy. 88% of Americans say that the role of the media is to provide fair and accurate news reports and to keep people informed on public affairs. 82% believe its role is to hold leaders accountable. So when people agree with the concept of the news, but not the current news media system, where does the industry go from here? Trust in the media and its ability to produce high-quality, fair, and accurate news has remained persistently low in the 21st century. So, how should journalists do their job if many Americans don't believe what they publish? There are two opposite routes in the future of the media gaining traction. And because this is We the Voters, we're going to talk about both of them. After the break inside A, we're going to look into the opinion that the media is biased and it should stay that way. Then we'll look at side B, a call for the media to return to objective reporting. But first, let's take that break. And we're back. So as I teased before the break, let's dig into one side of the argument, that the media is biased and it should stay that way. The history of the media is fraught with contradictions. Its role in U.S. society is highly contested. Some decades, it's a pillar for truth and independent reporting. Other decades, it serves as a money-making propaganda machine. The push and pull of these two competing roles is nothing new. But the rapid rise of infotainment and media bias in recent years has made that gap feel even larger. All Sides is an organization that evaluates bias in the media. The All Sides team believes in media transparency that by shining a light on bias, readers and viewers can become more aware and better informed. All Sides released a new media bias chart in January that reveals the bias behind more than 800 media organizations. Now, this chart is based on online content only, so not TV, print, or radio content. But the research is a starting point in understanding the current media landscape. Bias is lurking behind nearly all media. It's important to know which way it leans so that users can consume news from a variety of sources. This chart uses multipartisan scientific analysis, including blind surveys, to determine how news is perceived and interpreted. If you want to see the chart for yourself, I've linked a copy in today's show notes. You can find everything I've talked about so far on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. Now, All Sides categorizes the media into five sections. Left, lean left, center, lean right, and right. But the organization asserts that center doesn't necessarily mean it's better, or that biased sources are necessarily wrong. Instead, they say that a healthy news diet would include stories and outlets from each category. 
The Allsides Bias Chart considers news reporting, not opinion pieces from all of these outlets. It lists MSNBC and CNN as left outlets, while the National Review and One American News are considered right outlets. ABC and the New York Times are ranked as lean left, while Reason and Fox News are considered to lean right. In the center, you find reporting like the Wall Street Journal and the Associated Press. So, this chart asserts that bias is clearly apparent in journalism, from both sides of the political spectrum. Should the media fight to remove it completely? The way Side A sees it, journalists are humans, and even with the best intentions, bias finds its way into coverage, so they should own it. People in Side A say that instead of removing bias, reporters need to acknowledge it. They put the onus on you, the user, to seek sources and verify information. In this example, it would involve reading stories from CNN just as often as you read from Fox News, reading from the New York Times just as often as you read from the National Review, and so on and so forth. They say that the future of journalism comes not with independent reporting, but in transparency about bias and funding. A 2020 study from the Pew Research Center found that 61% of Americans expect the news to be accurate, but 69% believe that when the media does make a mistake, they try to cover it up. The reasons for why the public feels this way varies. More than half point to careless reporting. 44% believe that the media wants to mislead the public. And 53% believe it's caused by the pace of breaking news. But such numbers suggest a call for more transparency in the news reporting process, which includes transparency about funding, reporting, corrections, and conflicts of interest. This same research study found that the public wants to know more details about the media and how it operates. Nearly three-quarters of Americans want to know where newsroom funding comes from. 60% want the media to own up about conflicts of interest. And 55% want the media to be more clear about whether a story is opinion or factual. People on Side A interpret these findings as an indication newsrooms should own their biases. All sides looked at more than 800 media outlets in the United States and found that about 150 of them fell in the center. This is under 20% of the media analyzed and consumed in the U.S. today. This implies that about 80% of the media falls either slightly or fully to the right or the left. And yet, the majority of the media claims neutrality. So, would the media be better off to claim these biases in their newsrooms and their coverage as to gain trust with readers? Some say yes. A study suggests that users are loyal to a media organization when they feel like that organization values them. When a user feels valued, they are more likely to expect the news to be accurate, and they're also more likely to think that the media is transparent with their audience. So, it appears there is an argument to be made about owning a media organization's bias, and in some cases, its role is infotainment. Infotainment combines news with entertainment to share information, and this style of viral reporting has gained popularity in recent years. Infotainment can be identified by its fast-paced editing and sensationalist reporting. News anchors that head these shows or write these articles cross the line between reporting and entertainment, often to influence culture and gain popularity. This style of journalism has become increasingly popular through cable news and social media. Essentially, it turns news into a marketable product. It packages current events as entertaining stories that can buy attention from viewers. And for networks and sites that create infotainment, it's popular because it leads to clicks, which then leads to revenue. And for those who consume it, Infotainment feels fast-paced and casual. It's easy to consume, often broken down into soundbites or internet lists. It comes around as viral headlines and soft news coverage. Seen a Bernie Sanders meme from the inauguration on any news station or feed in the past two weeks? That's infotainment. 
Headlines that use hyperpartisan language meant to outrage, not inform? Infotainment. Hours of primetime coverage that pushes one side or the other? Yep, infotainment. When critics take to the streets shouting defund the media, many of them are talking about the proliferation of infotainment we see today. And while we'll talk about the myths around this protest chant in a few minutes, I wanted to explain how the lines of infotainment and hard news often get confused. Take Rachel Maddow. She's the host of a primetime show on MSNBC. On the left, she's praised for her star power and her progressive reporting. On the right, she is criticized for bias and activism. Or take Tucker Carlson. He's the host of a primetime show on Fox News. On the right, he is praised for exposing and standing up to the liberal media. On the left, he's criticized for bias and activism. Much like the right criticizes Rachel Maddow. But it appears that neither Rachel nor Tucker suggest they are non-biased, despite being hosts on popular cable news networks. Rachel's bio on MSNBC states that the show features, quote, her take on the biggest stories of the day, political or otherwise, unquote. She focuses on lively debate, in-depth analysis, and, quote, stories no other shows on cable news will cover. During his primetime show, Tucker's bio on Fox News states that Tucker, quote, challenges political correctness and media bias with segments like campus craziness and Twitter storm, unquote. His show focuses on powerful analysis and spirited debates, placing him in the story rather than simply just telling it. To the casual observer, either of these shows may present as news, not entertainment. It's seen as simply news with a viewpoint. Let's listen to a clip from The Rachel Maddow Show. Here, she updates viewers about freshman representative Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. Democrats in Congress today basically called the question on Marjorie Taylor Greene, insisting that House Republicans have to strip her committee assignments. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the pro-Trump Republican congresswoman who says 9-11 didn't really happen and neither did the mass shootings of children at Parkland in Florida or at Sandy Hook in Connecticut. She also says Donald Trump won re-election. And so I guess Joe Biden isn't really the president. For first day in, days in Congress, she, she wore a mask to the House of Representatives that said Trump won. Democrats today told Republicans basically that if Republicans don't take her off her committee assignments within 72 hours, they will do it themselves and they have the power to do it. Interestingly, tonight in a surprise move, the top Republican in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, released a statement um, calling Congresswoman Green a cancer and saying she doesn't live in reality. Uh, Senator McConnell apparently supports the idea that Republicans need to cut her off, cut off this kind of insanity from the rest of the party. And now let's listen to a clip from Tucker Carlson tonight. He updates viewers about the same freshman congresswoman. So how dangerous, just how dangerous, is this, this three-named congresswoman you probably have never heard of? Well, so dangerous that in the name of democracy, she must be expelled tonight from the Congress. That's what they're saying. No one is claiming voter fraud here. The member in question was elected just months ago with 75% of the vote. Now, that's roughly the same percentage of the vote that Nancy Pelosi got out in San Francisco. So there's no question that her voters very much wanted her to represent them in Washington. On the other hand, what do her voters have to do with democracy? That's not how democracy works. In the new democracy, CNN gets the veto. If cable news doesn't like your views, you have to leave Congress. That's the rule. The test is entirely ideological. You don't actually have to harm anyone to lose your job. This new member of Congress has barely even voted. She just got there the other day. But CNN says she has bad opinions, therefore she's the greatest threat we face. 
Now, if you're skeptical about any of this, our advice is keep it to yourself because free inquiry is dead. Unauthorized questions are hate speech. Anyone who suggests that this one member of Congress is not really America's greatest enemy is, by definition, one of America's greatest enemies. And that would definitely include this show, which CNN spent yet another weekend trying to get pulled off the air by force. Viewers who watch one show or the other can come away with different views on Congresswoman Green. From the view of a skeptical observer, bias is apparent on both shows, whether you agree with them or not. And yet both shows are wildly successful for their networks. So what does this say about the future of the media? People who believe that bias can find a place in journalism suggest that infotainment can play a crucial role when informing the public. The rise of opinions and commentators hooks more people in, which can lead to both more people consuming news and growing revenues for media companies. Critics say that infotainment lessens the quality of journalism, but supporters say that infotainment gives information fast. It informs a public who may not sit down to read a newspaper or watch a full-length documentary. It has adjusted the flow of news for the shortening human attention span. A study from Reuters and University of Oxford suggests that infotainment is here to stay. Why? Because younger generations seem to like it. This study revealed that Gen Z is particularly controlling over their online environment. And this contributes to how they consume news. Quote, it's about what it can do for them as individuals, rather than for society as a whole, unquote. Traditional media sees news as what a person should know. But young audiences appear to see news as not only what you should know, but what is useful, interesting, and fun. The Reuters study revealed that consuming news often feels like a chore to Gen Z users. Supporters of Side A expect more newsrooms to adopt a viral mentality, pushing opinion pieces and reporting that appeals to one side of the aisle while outraging the other and vice versa. When looking at the numbers, it's undeniable. There's money in infotainment. Overall, journalism profits have been in decline for decades. Many newspapers and magazines have shuttered. In the shift to online news, media organizations are left wondering how to pay the bills, especially when the expectation is that all information comes free. Ad revenue is down, subscriptions are down, and yet the current methods of cable news appear to be a guaranteed moneymaker. Network TV and news ratings have faltered with the rise of streaming services, but the ratings of cable news appear to have no ceiling. In fact, the big three cable news networks have all seen record rises in both ratings and profit. Fox News topped primetime ratings in 2020. The channel averaged 3.6 million viewers, up 45% from the year before. MSNBC also saw its ratings climb. Primetime viewership averaged 2.2 million in 2020, up 24%. And as for CNN, primetime ratings rose 85% last year. The channel averaged 1.8 million viewers nightly. These are undeniably large numbers of viewers, which bring about undeniably large numbers in profit. In 2018, the three channels together pulled in more than $5.2 billion in revenue. Compare this to the combination of CNBC, Fox Business, and Bloomberg, which pulled in about $1.2 billion. That's an additional $4 billion extra dollars between the big three cable news networks, showing that readers are buying what these cable news networks are selling. So, when there's true economic advantages to infotainment, what is the incentive for stations to transition to non-biased reporting? Fox News was the first news station to project President Biden's win in Arizona. Using statistical analysis, experts at the station called the win days before other outlets, and they were the first to name the now president elected. In the months following this reporting, the Fox News team stood by their analysis and their call, but much of their conservative viewership was outraged. 
chance of Fox News sucks came along CNN sucks at conservative rallies and protests in the months after the election. Campaigns were launched by viewers to switch to further right-leaning news organizations like One American News and Newsmax. Major questions were asked about the integrity of Fox News. Some accused Fox of falling under pressure from the liberal establishment. And all of this upheaval after one night of reporting led to a 20% drop in the average viewership. In the first two weeks of 2021, Fox fell behind both CNN and MSNBC for the first time in years. The channel began particularly lagging in the sought-after 25-54 to demographic. This 20% drop in average viewers will likely cut into the first quarter revenue for Fox News, which again appears to send a message. Cable news viewers seem more likely to prioritize partisanship and entertainment over independent reporting. But what is the line between biased news and disinformation? There is no question that disinformation poses a large problem in society today. With the advent of the internet and social media, there is no longer a sense of gatekeeping. On the positive side, this brings about a diversity in ideas. It brings light to stories that once had been overlooked. But on the negative side, it means that lies, hoaxes, and quote fake news can grow undeterred. Fake news is often thrown about from both sides of the aisle in disgust. In some cases, it's a dismissal of news that a person doesn't agree with. In others, it's shining a light on unfounded stories or lies. But where is that line between fake news and biased news? People who believe in side A say that this is an important distinction to be made. Fake news is disinformation. It's intended to spread lies or push unfounded information through viral memes and other internet trends. This news often surfaces from illegitimate sources or social media. On the other hand, they say that biased news is reporting with a strong point of view. Supporters of biased news say that the rise of partisan news outlets have not further polarized the U.S. Instead, these outlets have supported journalists to root out and report the truth. Some say that the fear of being labeled biased leads to, quote, lazy journalism that merely parrots those in power without separating truth from lies, unquote. Others suggest that voters can trust reporters more if they know their political views up front. Remember our discussion in the historical context? An objective media has been largely contested through U.S. history. And more often than not, the media was biased, largely up until the 20th century. The rise of radio and TV led many companies to drop their opinions in favor of non-biased news. They wanted to reach the widest audience possible, which led to the, quote, golden age of journalism. This golden age was a period when the majority of Americans got their news from a limited number of well-trusted broadcasters and newspapers. But the end of the 20th century deregulated the media industry. And after deregulation, overtly liberal and overtly conservative media gained big followings in digital radio and TV news. Online partisan sites saw the value of opinionated news for bottom lines, presenting hot takes alongside factual reporting. Fox News was founded in 1996 as a conservative voice in broadcasting. MSNBC launched that same year, serving as a left-of-center alternative to Fox. And in the 21st century, social media came to the forefront of the American internet experience. These platforms began showing users content that aligned with their political views. The idea was, if you show a person content they agree with, they're more likely to come back for more. And thus, these companies see their bottom line grow. The range of right to left to center sites leave Americans with an astronomical amount of choices for news. And supporters of Side A say, that's a good thing. Quote, the rise of partisan and advocacy journalism encourages reporters to search for the truth unhindered and provide Americans with the information they need, unquote. Issues and Controversies is a research report that focuses on current events and controversial issues. 
One 2020 article about objectivity in journalism suggests that if the media owned their bias, they could have been more critical about the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. The writers allege that if the media had been more of a watchdog, they could have challenged the Bush administration's claim about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. In 2004, the New York Times apologized for failing to challenge the administration's claims. Some who agree with Side A say that the media should embrace its biases and not change moving forward. They say that striving for objectivity brings more problems than solutions. Wesley Lowry is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. He wrote an op-ed about objectivity in the New York Times in 2020, saying that objectivity trips over itself to avoid telling the truth. He wrote, quote, Neutral objectivity insists that we use clunky euphemisms like officer-involved shooting. Moral clarity and a faithful adherence to grammar and syntax would demand that we use the words that most precisely mean the thing we're trying to communicate. The police shot someone, unquote. By focusing on objectivity, he says that you can lose viewpoints and experiences from diverse voices. Wesley wrote, quote, Since American journalism's pivot many decades ago from an openly partisan press to a model of professed objectivity, the mainstream has allowed what it considers objective truth to be decided almost exclusively by white reporters and their mostly white bosses. He says that the conversations about objectivity are inherently flawed. They are focused on predicting whether a sentence or an article will appear objective to a theoretical reader, and he says that reader is often assumed to be white, thus unintentionally creating more biases in reporting when the goal is to lessen them. Glenn Greenwald is a journalist and a constitutional lawyer. He argues that objectivity can also bolster credibility of those in power because of the false equivalency between points of view. Glenn writes in Salon that, quote, the overarching rule of journalistic objectivity is that a journalist must never resolve any part of a dispute between the Democratic and Republican parties, even when one side is blatantly lying. They must instead confine themselves to only mindlessly describing what each side claims and leave it at that, unquote. By ditching objectivity, Glenn asserts that journalists would be able to hold those in power accountable. He says that it would lead to a more full understanding of the truth. Others say that the argument about objectivity is pointless because journalists are humans and humans have biases, whether they acknowledge them or not. Matt Eidson was a North Dakota congressman and the former editor of a North Dakota newspaper. He says that even if reporters make every attempt to be unbiased, they still have gut feelings that strengthen evidence that supports their own point of view. He writes, quote, as a reader, do you prefer an unbiased reporter or would you rather they embrace their bias and make an intelligent argument without debasing anyone, no matter what they believe? He comes to the conclusion that as a journalist, the quote, best thing I can do for a consumer is to make my bias as clear as possible while presenting facts or opinions in an intelligent manner that does not demean those who disagree with me, unquote. Essentially, supporters of bias in journalism say that objectivity is a laudable goal, but reporting is inherently subjective. Some even say that the line between journalism and activism is murky at best. Joe Amditis is the host of the WTF Just Happened Today podcast. In an op-ed on Medium, he writes, quote, The idea that you can completely rid yourself of your biases and personal predilections is utter nonsense. Deciding to write about a certain topic or choosing to interview a particular expert automatically betrays a certain bias on behalf of the journalist, unquote. He continues on to argue that by selecting what to cover, journalists have an opportunity to push an agenda in their reporting or in their articles placement. By selecting what is important, it leads to the question, important to who? Important why? And what does important mean? The blurring of journalism and activism appears both more common and more accepted among proponents of side A. Rebecca Schneid was the co-editor of her high school newspaper in Parkland, Florida. 
She was a student during the mass shooting that killed 17 people in 2018. In an interview on CNN, she said, quote, I think that for me, the purpose of journalism is to raise the voices of people who maybe don't have a voice. And so I think that in its own right, journalism is a form of activism, unquote. Rebecca continued on, saying that the partnership between journalism and activism is how social change happens. A quote from this interview went viral on social media. Critics said that she failed to understand the difference between journalism and propaganda, but others stood up in her defense. Matt Pierce is a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. He wrote, quote, Choosing what you want people to know is a form of activism, even if it's not the march and protest kind, unquote. Wesley wrote, quote, any good journalist is an activist for the truth, in favor of transparency, on the behalf of accountability, unquote. And in a changing media landscape, newsrooms are grappling with questions of objectivity and bias. Is it objective or is it biased to call out a politician's remarks as racist? Does it cross a line if a journalist marches for female rights and empowerment? What if a journalist speaks up for equity when a marginalized group is being attacked? Some err on the side of objectivity, saying that social commentary is not journalism's place. But many journalists, particularly in the younger generation, see that their identity is integral to their reporting. Yokai Benkler is a professor at Harvard Law School. He says that professional journalism needs to move away from performative objectivity. He writes, quote, The critical move needs to be from objectivity as neutrality to objectivity as truth-seeking. That's how you avoid false equivalencies. In a propaganda-rich system, to be neutral is to be complicit, unquote. He says that editorial choices show the point of view of journalists and editors, whether they intend to or not. By choosing what to cover, you are shining a light on one story and not another. And some say you're essentially setting an agenda with your coverage. Now, some organizations have made their biases clear with mission statements or ethics guidelines. Take the internet company BuzzFeed. In 2015, BuzzFeed published ethics guidelines saying that there were not two sides for a number of issues like civil rights, women's rights, and LGBT equality. Editor Ben Smith found this move uncontroversial. He wrote, quote, It's hard to find a news organization where they say there are two sides to racial segregation. I don't think that a question of whether LGBT citizens have equal rights is a debatable point, unquote. On the other hand, BuzzFeed prohibits staffers from taking part in political rallies or posting partisan views on social media. These contrasting policies show how murky some believe the line between activism and journalism is. Biased critics say that these questions of activism and partisanship call for a return to the fairness doctrine, but Side A says this doesn't make sense. Jim Swift is the senior editor at The Bulwark. It's a digital center-right news site. He says that years ago, the scope of broadcasting meant regulating for the common good made more sense. But now, he says, quote, we have social media galore. There's no shortage of opinion, conservative or liberal, good, bad, or ugly, that you can't get for free in seconds. So I'll repeat our refrains from the old fairness doctrine debate. If you don't like the service, don't use it, unquote. So to recap, people who agree with this side believe in one or all of these points. One, it is not the media's role to present non-biased information, but it is instead the user's role to find information from a variety of sources. Two, the future of media lies in transparency about bias and funding, rather than independent reporting. Three, biased news does not necessarily mean fake news. News can be slanted without being false. And four, it is a role of the media to be a voice of the voiceless, on either side of the aisle. Media has an opportunity to serve as a moral center, propagating specific points of view. Now, I know that was a lot to take in, so let's pause here and take a break. 
And when we come back, let's look at side B, a belief that the future of media lies in a return to non-biased reporting. And we're back. So in the first part of this episode, we discussed side A. In this argument, people believe that the media is biased, and it should stay that way, either because it's the user's job to parse information, because it makes profits, or because it is the media's job to be a moral center. So what do people think on the other side of the issue, the ones that believe the media needs to return to non-biased reporting? I'm so glad you asked. Let's dig in. The media is set up to grab attention. Fights for funding and viewers on all platforms produces content that goes viral, but not always content that informs. The pressure to be first can often come at a consequence, the facts, or rather that it feels like the facts come second in the 24-hour news cycle. A growing distrust in the media has led to problems funding the media, and as we discussed in Side A, the news industry is at a crossroads. Sensational news sells, outrage goes viral, catfights get clicks, but none of these methods contribute to the common knowledge. They fail to uphold historic journalism ethics standards. They negate the media's ability to inform when they're caught up in the reaction. The Society of Professional Journalists have a code of ethics that informs many journalism standards today. In this code of ethics, it says a journalist has the responsibility to seek truth and report it, minimize harm, act independently, and be accountable and transparent. When held to this standard, the proliferation of viral culture and the instant news cycle appear to harm, not help journalism. Breaking this cycle may be essential to the media's future. Take headlines, for example. Headlines are essential in news. They summarize stories, they grab the reader's attention, and they direct focus to key facts. And yet, they are often misused in the race for viral shares and ratings boosts. Take these three headlines about former President Trump's impeachment trial, which is set to begin next week. From the right, quote, Trump legal team argues impeachment article is in violation of the Constitution, calls on Senate to acquit, unquote. From the left, quote, House Dems make case for conviction, Trump denies charges, unquote. And from the center, quote, impeachment managers call Trump singularly responsible for Capitol riots, unquote. If you were to just read the headlines and then keep scrolling, you could read any of the three of those and have an entirely different understanding of the story and an entirely different understanding on how you should feel about the story. In digital news, headlines play a major role in how users share and read news. Studies have shown that negativity, puns, and metaphors all increase clicks on social media. But at what cost? Clickbait is one way that media companies are trying to cut through the noise of their competitors. Long gone are the days when users tuned in to one of three news broadcasts, or simply subscribed to their local paper. Instead, media companies are constantly competing for eyes, ears, and market share. Clickbait headlines are undeniably effective, but they're also undeniably manipulative. Studies have shown that when we engage on social media, our brain releases dopamine, the neurochemical that makes us feel good. And this same effect happens when a headline sparks our curiosity. But many clickbait headlines don't deliver articles with any substance. They feed emotional needs rather than intellectual ones. And when a person reads too much clickbait, they can become accustomed to superficial reading rather than seeking out objective news. Headlines influence readers' perceptions, both of the news itself and of its news source. Playing into clickbait trends may grow revenue in the short term, but it can also impact how seriously readers view that media organization. And another way the media can lose trust? By spreading disinformation. President John Adams first complained about, quote, fake news back in 1798 when he created the Sedition Act to curb criticism and the press. 
At that time, he wrote, quote, There have been more new error propagated by the press in the last 10 years than in the 100 years before 1798, unquote. Printed with a new date and some updated language, this accusation may feel right at home in the op-ed pages of a national newspaper. And it proves partisanship in the media is not new, even when it feels more prevalent now than ever before. Many users consume disinformation every day, often without realizing it. Some comes in the form of new satire, and other comes in parody, but much of it comes in the form of propaganda, like photos and videos from real events that have been manipulated to create a new or a false narrative, or clickbait headlines that put hoaxes and other lies into news-style articles, or memes and gifs that originate on the internet from unnamed users, made with the intent to twist the truth and rally supporters. All of these forms of propaganda are intended to misinform and to go viral. They are the true epitome of, quote, fake news. Now, fake news is not necessarily news you disagree with, like what we discussed in Side A. Instead, it's news that has been propagated by bad actors both in and outside the media to confuse the public and perpetuate lies. And once these hoaxes go viral, it's difficult to dissuade users from believing in them. Some experts believe it is the media's role to directly investigate and fact-check so-called fake news. Like we discussed in Side A, there is a difference between fake news and biased news. Biased news is a reality in the media ecosystem. Some see it as a problem, like here in Side B, but others see it as the new role of journalism, like we discussed in Side A. Vanessa Otero is a patent attorney who became interested in media bias. In 2018, she analyzed the media landscape and released the first version of her media bias chart. Similar to the All Sides media chart we talked about earlier, this chart ranks news organization from left to right on the political spectrum, but it also ranks organizations from most to least reliable. These two scores combine to place media organizations on, essentially, a curve. It visually shows sources that are most reliable to least reliable, and this chart adds another way the media and readers can assess legitimate versus fake news. In Otero's media chart, she finds that sources like the Associated Press and Reuters are consistently the most reliable and the most non-biased. On the other hand, cable news shows like MSNBC and Fox show higher bias and lower reliability scores. I've put this chart and everything else I've talked about in today's episode in the show notes. You can find that on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. Understanding media bias and perceptions in media bias is essential when discerning fake news or disinformation. When talking about fake news in the abstract, it's easy to feel like you'll know it when you see it. But oftentimes, experts find that it's less clear when faced with disinformation in real life. Two professors launched a class to combat disinformation in 2017. It prompts students and the public to ask these questions when looking at a news story. Who is telling me this? How do they know it? What's in it for them? Howard Schneider is a former Newsday editor. He says that the internet may bring enlightenment, but it can just as easily spread lies. He says that the ultimate check is not better trained journalists or more press critics. Instead, users are the answer. Consumers need to be able to differentiate between unfounded scams and independent verified journalism. But what happens when legitimate media sources publish fake news? Experts say it's essential to apologize for the error. About half of readers say that after seeing official corrections, they are more confident in an outlet, while only 12% say it makes them less confident. By acknowledging when the media goes wrong, it sets an important precedent in gaining trust. Now, some say that fake news is a problem, but that the mainstream media is an even bigger one. Like I talked about at the top of the episode, there appears to be distrust and disdain for the media on both ends of the political spectrum. Leftist activists who actively block reporters from doing their job, for example, and right-wing activists who confront or harass journalists, who chant defund the media. 
But what does defund the media truly mean? Christopher Willard is a novelist and poet. He wrote a medium op-ed in 2020 entitled, It's Time to Defund the Mainstream Television News Media. In this opinion piece, Christopher argues that the mainstream media is biased beyond the hope of repair. He says the fault lies partly with the FCC, who manages public airwaves but are largely hands-off. But his main problem is with how major media organizations use public airwaves for free and generate billions of dollars in the process. In this op-ed, he wants to defund the news media by intervening in direct profits, classifying news as a public interest and thus requiring oversight, and requiring an oversight board for journalism ethics and standards. But to defund the media would imply that the media is funded by the people in the first place. The news organizations that Christopher names, ABC, CBS, CNN, NBC, MSNBC, Fox News, these are all owned by corporations. NPR and PBS are the two broadcast networks funded by taxpayers. Defunding these stations has been attempted multiple times since 1967. It has been found that this is not as easy as one may think. Congress does not directly fund NPR and PBS, but instead it funds the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, or CPB. If Congress revoked funding to CPB, it would mean that thousands of people across the U.S. would lose their jobs, many of them working in small rural towns. Some say that defunding CPB would free member stations from the threat of government interference. Others say that losing federal funds would give stations a chance to reinvent themselves and become more community-oriented. But the regulations around NPR and PBS are largely moored. Changing them would not happen overnight. Much like changing any part of the media will not happen quickly. Many Americans say they agree that media is an essential part of democracy, and the Founding Fathers acknowledged this when they protected the press under the First Amendment. But in a time that calls to, quote, defund the media, and distrust in the media seems to be at an all-time high, many journalists are wondering, how do we build trust with the public? A 2020 Gallup Night study found that nearly 80% of Americans believe the media is trying to convince people to adopt a certain opinion. To build trust with these skeptical readers, some say the media should focus on eliminating bias from their papers and news sources. Existing biases in the media and their newsrooms have caused some journalists to strike out on their own. Barry Weiss is a former opinions editor from the New York Times. In July 2020, she resigned, citing issues with the climate at the paper. She wrote, quote, Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences, rather than to allow a curious public to read about the world and draw their own conclusions. I was always taught that journalists were charged with writing the first rough draft of history. Now, history itself is one more ephemeral thing molded to fit the needs of a predetermined narrative. Unquote. Barry published her resignation letter openly on her website, and in this letter she makes several accusations against staff at the New York Times. Barry says her work and her character were regularly questioned or demeaned, both within the company and in the public. She continued, quote, For these young writers and editors, there is one consolation. As places like the Times and other once great journalistic institutions betray their standards and lose sight of their principles, Americans still hunger for news that is accurate, opinions that are vital, and debate that is sincere, unquote. Barry writes that she believes America is a great country, and one that deserves a great newspaper. And other journalists appear to agree. Philip Corbett was the managing editor at the New York Times in 2013. He wrote, quote, I flatly reject the notion that there is no such thing as impartial objective journalism, that it's some kind of pretense or charade. We expect professionals in all sorts of fields to put their personal opinions aside or keep them to themselves when they do their work. Judges, police officers, scientists, teachers. Why would we expect anything less of journalists? 
Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent of the New York Times. In March 2020, he wrote that a reporter's job was to observe, not participate. He says, quote, For me, it's easier to stay out of the fray if I never make up my mind, even in the privacy of the kitchen or the voting booth, that one candidate is better than another, that one side is right and the other is wrong, unquote. Earlier in this episode, Side A said that owning opinions led to owning criticism, and that led to holding power accountable. Now, let's take a look at that from the other side. Supporters of independent journalism say that objective newsrooms regularly and successfully distinguish fact from fiction, while still maintaining non-biased reporting. Tom Kent is the standards editor at the Associated Press. He writes that society dismisses objectivity at its own peril. Tom says, quote, The news consumer needs faith that there's somewhere to go quickly for the basic facts. It seems a no-brainer that there's a value to established, reliable voices on things that matter most. Experienced in sorting out contradictions, wary of sloppiness and hoaxes, and not pushing a personal objective, unquote. Proponents of Side B say that most readers want independent journalism over flashy infotainment, even if cable news ratings appear to say otherwise. Jeffrey McCall is a professor at DePaul University. He writes, quote, Careless and needless mistakes happen when accountability and accuracy are devalued in favor of pushing ideological high horses or generating shrill headlines to get clicks and ratings, unquote. In an op-ed in The Hill, he calls for a return to non-biased reporting. He says, quote, Citizens can sort out for themselves what to make of information they've received from the media. They don't want to be worked or lectured to by a news industry that increasingly mixes reporting with agenda pushing, unquote. Some experts say pushing this agenda has contributed to polarization in the U.S. 2018 research shows that there is almost no overlap between what conservatives and liberals saw as, quote, trusted media sources. And when there's no agreement on what is the truth, how can people agree on how to move forward? Peter Canellos is an editor at Politico. In 2018, he wrote, quote, The explosion of agenda-driven content spread by social media may please some readers who prefer to get their news from like-minded sources, but it has blurred the lines about what is and isn't journalism, unquote. This blurred line creates a proliferation of disinformation and biased opinion sources, which Peter says further confuses the impact of non-biased media stories. Some supporters of objective journalism say that the government should reinstate the fairness doctrine, which was struck down in the late 80s. This requirement, they say, would make sure that outlets focused on reporting news and analyzing issues, rather than following the highs and lows of the political circus. Which leads to the question, is there a way to make non-biased news appealing to consumers in a way that makes money, particularly in an age when biased cable news draws in billions of dollars? The reach of the internet means more people are interacting with the news, but it also means that more people expect the news for free. In the quote golden age of journalism, people paid for newspaper subscriptions. They placed ads in the paper, both as businesses and in the classifieds. Broadcast TV and radio made money off of ad spots every day. But today, the Pew Research Center says that most media companies don't turn a profit, and that means newsrooms are shrinking. Overall, the industry has dropped 23% of jobs between 2008 and 2019. Print media lost the most, having their employees over that decade. Radio lost 23% of its jobs. On the other hand, TV jobs appear stable and digital jobs are growing, but it's still not enough to even out the net losses from traditional media sources. Shrinking newsrooms and limited budgets have a tremendous effect on the news. When the media is struggling to turn a profit, they rely more on selling products. And selling products can leave objectivity by the wayside. Jenny Gritters is a freelance journalist. 
She wrote an op-ed about journalism business models saying, quote, to keep our doors open, we have to sell papers or get page views. We need people to read what we write, unquote. This in and of itself creates problems. She says if an audience responds well to a topic or story, there's incentive to make more of it. And if an audience doesn't like the story, newsrooms stop making it. In a media culture that values clickbait and viral stories to get shares, this can lead to a degradation of high-quality journalism. Jenny writes that this trend also, quote, leads to the kind of segmentation we're seeing, with certain audiences gravitating towards places that make the kind of stories that they like, unquote. Supporters of non-biased journalism say that there's power in putting your money where your values are. If you want objective journalism, pay for objective journalism. Jenny says that newsrooms will continue to be understaffed and the quality of news will suffer until users once again find value in the media. She writes, quote, most reporters today don't have enough time to think past their biases or to gather news with nuance and integrity, unquote. Other supporters of Side B agree, saying that for objectivity to survive in the free market, readers must pay for journalism they support. Jennifer Howe and Brett Sherrick are Purdue University professors. They wrote in a Fortune op-ed that Americans don't bat an eye at charges for streaming services, so why do they bulk at paying for the news? They say, quote, news consumers have become accustomed to free access to news content. Since we've been spoiled by news content that is available for free, we expect it to continue to be free. An anchoring effect has made any increase in the price of news seem large, even though a newspaper subscription is often not much more than a Netflix subscription, unquote. Jennifer and Brett say that advertising on the internet does not pay the bills for newsroom the way it did in print formats. They say that direct government funding creates conflicts of interest and that tax exemptions could create other business conflicts. So instead, the onus comes down to users to pay for the news they support. They say that while some news organizations have found ways to make revenue, most of the media needs readers to subscribe for support. And this is especially important in local news. They write, quote, without a committed and sustained investment from the American public, local journalism may cease to exist. Paying for high-quality, objective journalism that you support creates ripples through the larger media ecosystem. It sends a message that this is what readers want, and they're willing to pay for it. Proponents of Side B suggest that beyond paying for the news, it's important to be skeptical of the news. They say that increased media literacy can hold news to higher standards, and it will raise the quality of news overall. Anecdotal evidence that we've discussed in this episode suggests that there's a market for objective news in America. But can fact-based and unbiased channels make a splash in the larger media landscape? Nextar Media Group announced last month that they were rebranding its WGN America channel as News Nation. This news station is intended to be a fact-based and unbiased alternative to cable news networks. So far, the channel has averaged about 15,000 viewers in the key 25 to 54 demographic. Nextar says that the viewership needs to average at least 100,000 to make this station viable. Perry Sook is the company chief executive. He says the biggest issue is that most viewers don't know News Nation is there. He says, quote, I think that we've got a swim lane here, which is, don't tell me what to think, just tell me what's going on, and I'll make up my own mind, unquote. Many proponents of Side B recognize that while they want unbiased cable news, launching a new cable news network is a risk. And in the age of infotainment, networks are being further scrutinized for bias in their coverage. Frank Cessna is a former CNN bureau chief. He now teaches at George Washington University, and he says that every decision a news organization makes reflects their judgment calls. He writes, quote, The nature of the news should not be based on a popularity contest, but to inform, however uncomfortable or inconvenient that is. 
unfortunately, in the highly polarized environment in which we find ourselves, defined by grievance, distrust, and identity politics, plenty of people find that a given focus, fact, or feature reveals a point of view or innate bias, unquote. Time will tell if stations like News Nation have a future in today's media climate. Andrew Hirschfield is a reporter at The Business of Business. He writes that while people say they want non-biased news, bias is often in the eye of the beholder. And in a saturated national news market, News Nation is facing an uphill battle. He writes, quote, Other channels have tried to break into the American cable market and haven't met the mark. Take Al Jazeera America, for example, the channel built out of one of the most revered and respected news organizations in the globe. The quality of the news was top-notch, but without a competitive audience, it folded, unquote. But Andrew says there could be a chance for News Nation. He writes that more voices are needed in the media as the industry itself shrinks amidst layoffs and the pandemic. With the backing of Nexstar stations, he writes, there could be a chance. So, to recap, people who agree with Side B believe in one or all of these main points. One, objective reporting can help reduce the hostile media effect, a phenomenon where Americans believe the news media is biased against their own political party and beliefs. By focusing on objectivity, reporters can reduce the disdain for the media and rebuild trust with the public. Two, non-biased reporting recalls the golden age of journalism and contributes to the shared space of common knowledge. By calling facts as facts and opinion as opinion, independent media can build bridges between polarized political groups and facilitate a more informed society. Three, claiming bias in journalism harms the media's reputation and makes it more difficult to disrupt fake news cycles. Removing opinion from reporting helps distinguish between true news, expert opinion, and planted disinformation. And four, there is a market for true, non-biased journalism, even if cable news ratings suggest otherwise. Some readers and reporters are eager to consume and pay for high-quality, fact-based reporting. After the break, let's talk about how users can find high-quality journalism in today's media landscape. But first, let's pause for a moment. So, where do we go from here? Many people are grappling with this very question, debating the two sides we discussed in today's episode. Some are wishing for a return to the journalism of yesteryear, the time of Cronkite and Murrow. Others want to push the media into a new era, leaning further into niche reporting and the ever-quickening news cycle. These conflicting movements appear to be simmering. Perhaps in this new decade, we'll see movement one way or the other. And while the future may feel bleak, some studies suggest it is not. For example, a 2020 Pew Research Center study found that 75% of Americans believe it's possible to improve the level of confidence in the media. Since I launched We the Voters in 2019, I'm often asked how to stay well-informed when there's just so much news available. And here's what I say. First, recognize the bias that exists in journalism today. Some of my colleagues in the media will likely scoff at this assessment or even disagree. But research has shown, and we've discussed, only a handful of news outlets truly pass a non-biased test. Understanding bias in the media does not mean that you need to stop consuming news on either side of the aisle. Instead, it means you need to recognize that the bias is there. By recognizing bias, you are able to better understand how a media organization interprets current events. And you're also able to seek out news from contrasting sources. Which leads me to point two. Second, do not exist in a news bubble. Read news from a variety of sources, left, right, and center. Like all sides says, center doesn't always mean better, just like right or left doesn't always mean the reporting is wrong or unreasonable. 
Instead, it's important to read media from a wide range of outlets to make sure you're seeing the full picture. As we've discussed in this week's episode, media newsrooms at both local and national levels are often underfunded. Some media bias can be explained not by a master plan of omission, but simply because they do not have the staff or the budget to cover every story. By reading a variety of left, right, and center sources, you will have a much more clear understanding of the day's events. Third, do not rely solely on national news outlets. Cable news and national news outlets have their place in the media ecosystem, but they are not the only place for news. Just like you should read stories from the left, right, and center, you should also read stories from local, state, and national sources. Local and state news are more acutely aware about the community, its leaders, and its problems. They are more engaged with the community because they rely on the community for both stories and for viewers. Stories that are relevant to your state or your community may not be covered on CNN or Fox News, but they will surely be covered by your local TV station or your local newspaper. Consuming local or state news adds another layer of understanding to current events and societal concerns. Which brings me to my last point. Be skeptical of what you see and read on social media. Social media platforms have connected users in new and often astounding ways. Information is shared more widely and more quickly than ever before. And in many ways, this is a great asset. It can help people become more informed about current events and social issues. But it also has its downsides. Disinformation runs amok on social media and the internet. Predatory sites pose as news sources to spread propaganda and opinion from both sides of the aisle. And many people share these stories on their own feeds without even realizing it. Why? Because at first glance, they often seem legit. So before you share, take a few moments to research the story in the source. If you don't recognize the site as an established media organization, read the about page. Some predatory sites will openly state that they are for entertainment only, while their articles may look like they pose as news. If page links are missing or they don't lead where you expect, it's another sign that you've come across a predatory site. These sites often rely on pop-up ads and clickbait to make money, rather than the subscriptions that fund much of the legitimate media today. Another barometer to see if a story is legitimate is a quick Google search. Check to see if another news source is reporting the same story. If no one else is covering it, chances are good you're reading fake news. Media is an ecosystem. It thrives because it often recycles stories from other stations. If one outlet is covering a story, it is nearly guaranteed that more will pick it up. So, to recap, reading news today means that you should acknowledge current biases in the media, seek sources from the right, left, and center to make sure you are getting the full story, and don't just stick to national sources. Read your local paper or tune into your local TV station too. Be skeptical on social media. Always read and evaluate a story before you share it. Make sure that you're sharing true stories rather than unintentionally spreading lies or disinformation. Looking forward, we're at a crossroads with the media. Some believe that we should dig deeper into opinions and sides. They say the reader is responsible for seeking stories from a variety of sources, much like what we just discussed. But others believe that we need to return to true, non-biased reporting. They crave the golden age of journalism, before the proliferation of cable news and online information spread. What do you think? Do you want to see more opinion-based reporting? Or do you want independent stories that present both sides without bias? Do you think that we should reinstate the fairness doctrine? Or does it infringe on free speech? How should the media be monitored moving forward? And is there any way that the media can rebuild trust with the public? Let me know your thoughts on these questions or anything else I talked about in this week's episode by shooting me a text or leaving me a voicemail. You can reach We the Voters at 773-658-9492. You can also email me at wethevotersproject at gmail.com. 
Your stories and reaction may be used in an upcoming episode or in another part of the We the Voters site. Let's stay in touch between episodes. I keep this conversation going on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me on Facebook at We the Voters Project, on Twitter at Hi We the Voters, and on Instagram at We the Voters. We the Voters is a project funded by people like you. If you liked what you heard today, consider supporting this work with a one-time or monthly donation. You can donate on patreon.com slash we the voters or via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal. Send me an email or a text if you'd like to find out more. You can also support We the Voters without spending a dime. Please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you're listening today. Or tell a friend about the show. Snap a screenshot of this episode and tag me on Instagram or Facebook. All of these ways take just a few moments, but they make a big impact on how this podcast can grow. And I'm so grateful that you've made it this far and that you'd even consider supporting We the Voters. Sharing this project with you means so much to me. Everything I've talked about in this week's episode is linked in the show notes. You can find them on the blog at wethevotersproject.com. I'll be back here in your feed next Wednesday with a discussion about policing in the United States. But until then, I'm Emily Kate, and this was We the Voters.